Welcome to the Matt Lupu Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lupu. What is the point of archaeology? Why should anyone bother to spend their time digging up buried artifacts? What could possibly be learned from such an exercise? If you're like me, these questions have painfully obvious answers. Sometimes we don't have written records, so we don't know what happened one or two or more thousand years ago. And think about the people of Iron Age Britain, or humanity's closest cousins, the Neanderthals. If we want to know about their lives, archaeology is the only tool we have. Sometimes a culture had written records, but those records, for whatever reason, were destroyed. Think about the Maya. They had a robust writing system and lots of records, but they were all destroyed by the Spanish. In a case like that, archaeology can be a political act. By learning about the ancient Maya, the modern Maya people have a way of connecting with their ancient ancestors. Even in cases where we do have written histories... The written word doesn't necessarily explain everything that we want to know, or it might be unreliable. What if you wanted to know about Roman buildings? You could read Vitruvius's De Architectura, or you could excavate a collection of Roman buildings, or, better yet, you could do both. By comparing what was written to what was excavated, you can corroborate or refute Vitruvius's advice when it comes to construction. But archaeology has even more uses than those. As it turns out, ancient people loved making pottery. They loved it so much that it's everywhere. We have so much of it, and it's so distinctive, that it turns out you can date how old it is based on its style and composition. In fact, archaeologists have made entire catalogs of what each regional style of pottery looked like in each given time period. These catalogs, also called typologies, can then be used to date previously undated layers of archaeology, which only yields more information for the archaeologist. All that information comes from the material objects that ancient people used. Now, if you analyze human remains themselves from various time periods, you can learn about the general diet and health of the people alive thousands of years ago. Ancient peoples often buried their dead with ceremonial goods. If you compare those grave goods found with human remains, you can deduce a person's social status. The more grave goods, at least in theory, the higher the social status we can then begin to evaluate the relationship between personal wealth and those other factors like sickness or health or diet. In theory, if we do this enough, we will begin to solve the ancient world. The two operative words in that last sentence, theory and solve. When I say solve the ancient world, what I mean is that the end goal for people like myself is to know all that can possibly be known about a given time period or people 
through gathering and analyzing empirical evidence. Much like the problem of fixed-wing flight has been solved, or building an internal combustion engine has been solved, perhaps one day humanity's understanding of how the different social classes in Augustan Rome interacted with each other will be similarly solved. Now, believe it or not, all that business of solving the past is in fact quite controversial. Not everyone in the humanities is on the same page when it comes to what the point of the humanities are. For some, the point is to affect social change via a matrix of scholarship as activism. For others, the point of the humanities is to add depth and appreciation to life. And yet for still others, the point is to make new knowledge that is true. I can't pretend to understand what motivates one group of scholars versus another, but I can use this opportunity to try and advocate for that third option. That the point of the humanities, including fields like archaeology and classics, is to make new knowledge, with the ultimate goal of developing an objective and complete understanding of the ancient world to the furthest possible extent of humankind's ability. The reason that I think that this should be the ultimate point of archaeology is because of my understanding of how human knowledge is produced and how that methodology can be applied to a broad series of endeavors far beyond the fields that are traditionally considered to be science. To try and share with you why I've come to the conclusions I have, I'm going to have to take you on a long and torturous detour into the world of philosophy of knowledge. So... Hold tight and stay with me. I promise this is all leading somewhere. If you'll remember from a moment ago, I said that we have to deal with two operative words, solve and theory. I think by now you all understand what I meant when I said solve. So, for the other operative word, theory. Theory is a tricky word with multiple definitions. What could I possibly mean when I say the word theory. In the scientific sense, a theory is an idea that could plausibly explain a phenomenon. Let's pretend the year is 400 BCE. I'm sitting at the foot of Mount Olympus with a few of my philosopher friends. We're all watching the display of thunder and lightning coming from the very peak of the mountain, in a state of total awe. We all wonder why the thunder and lightning seems to be localized to the clouds that often gather at the peak. We all wonder why the thunder and lightning seems to be localized to the clouds that often gather at the summit. One philosopher says, well, it's clear why. For that mountain peak is the home of the gods. We are all witness to Zeus's power, since he controls the deadly thunderbolt. Another philosopher disagrees. He says, I'm not so sure that the gods do live on that mountain peak, since they seem to be in the temples as well. How could they be in both places at once? Perhaps the thunder is a product of the clouds that gather there. And then I say last of all, how could the thunder and lightning be products of the cloud? Not all clouds generate them, so how can we be sure? No, I think that the thunder is a product of the lightning. The lightning must be hot, since when it strikes a tree, it lights it on fire. 
Perhaps, as it superheats the air around the bolt, the air will very quickly be displaced since hot air is lighter than cool air. As the cold air rushes to take the place of this superheated air, a loud clap of thunder is the result. Now as for how the lightning itself is generated, that, my friends, is a mystery. In this story, each one of our philosophers has generated a theory to explain the observation of thunder and lightning. Life would be easier indeed if that definition of a theory were the only one. But there's another looser definition of a theory. A theory can also be thought of as an ideal or hypothetical set of facts or principles, or even circumstances, that one may assume for the sake of argument or investigation. This usage, while quite different from the scientific one, is perhaps the more common. It's the one that we talk about when we use the phrase, in theory. Let's say I'm taking a long trip by car from one end of my state to the other. I can estimate the time I will arrive at my destination, assuming there are no delays on the road ahead. I might even say to those people that are expecting me at dinner time, in theory, I'll be home by 7. In that case, I'm assuming a set of facts that I don't actually know, but my conclusion will hold true under ideal circumstances. I don't know for sure that there are no delays, but if we assume that there aren't, then I will be home by 7. To make matters worse, we can also define theory in a more abstract, less commonly used way. This last definition of theory uses the word to mean a body of knowledge or ideas that present a concise and systematic understanding of a subject, or even more broadly, as the general or abstract principles behind that body of knowledge. That definition of theory is the one that we use most often in academia, especially in the social sciences and the humanities. When one talks about behavioral psychology, that is a broad psychological theory that all behavior is acquired through conditioning, just like the example of Pavlov's dog or Skinner's box. In the case of Pavlov, every time he fed a dog, he rang a bell. Eventually, the dog would salivate when it heard the bell because of the association between the two. Later, psychologists took these early examples of conditioning and sought to generalize them to explain all learning, thus giving birth to behavioral psychology with a capital B and a capital P. Similarly, you could argue that Freud's work, taken as a whole, rises to the level of a grand theory of psychology. But theories like this need not be limited to psychology. Some other examples of this usage of the word would be Marxism in the realm of economics, or functionalism in sociology, or even string theory in physics. All right, so what happens when you have two theories of this last type that are in direct conflict with each other? Just like Freudian psychology and behaviorism. Freud's work predated the work of the behavioral psychologists, so he didn't have any reason to try and incorporate the findings of Skinner or any of the experiments about conditioning into his own grand theory of psychology, since they just hadn't happened yet. Therefore, none of the results observed by Skinner or Pavlov were predicted by Freud's theory. And now we have a conundrum. 
As later researchers continued their work in psychology, new facts and new observations about the field would emerge that could not be made to fit into the framework of previous theories. So what is a researcher to do? In the case of psychology, Freud's theory has been almost entirely abandoned as a serious attempt to explain psychological phenomena. Too much evidence contradicting Freud has been accrued over the course of the last century to continue to take it seriously. Now that doesn't mean that psychology departments don't teach Freud in Intro to Psychology. It just means that they teach it in the context of the history and development of psychology. Nobody is telling freshman psychology students that Freud knew all the answers. As it turns out, this process that I've just described, that is the process of altering a theory as new information comes to light, or even abandoning it entirely, is itself a theory. That theory is called science, or the scientific method. Strictly speaking, it is the theory that true knowledge about the world can be reliably generated through a process that involves observation, coming up with possible explanations for those observations, and then testing the explanations with experiments or otherwise gathering more evidence to see if the new observations fit in with one explanation or another. The exact procedure for how the experiments are run or how the evidence is gathered may differ, but the theory remains the same across an astonishingly wide range of circumstances. The scientific method came to prominence in the 17th century, although there are numerous examples of older instances of its use throughout history, going back to classical antiquity. From the time of its inception and broad adoption, humanity has made incredible advances in not only our technology, but our basic understanding of the universe. The evidence is all around us. Life today bears little resemblance to life in the 17th century, but life in the 17th century looked quite a bit like life in any century previous to it. So how do we know that the scientific method works? The simple answer is that if you apply the scientific method to the theory of science, then all the evidence you gather supports it as being true. But hang on, why? Why is it that gathering evidence and using logic to explain evidence effective? That question is surprisingly difficult to answer. By asking it and attempting to formulate a sensible answer, we must leave the realm of science for the realm of philosophy. There is an entire branch of philosophy that deals with just this question and questions related to it. That branch is known as epistemology. Now, I'm not a philosopher, and to be quite honest, I don't really want to get much deeper into the weeds than we've already gotten, but in the interest of fairness and transparency, it is worth acknowledging that other philosophers have noted a few significant problems exist in the heart of the scientific method. Perhaps the biggest problem is the problem of induction. Now, what is induction? I'm glad you asked. Induction, or inductive reasoning, is when you make a probable conclusion from a limited number of observations. For example, if I observe that it only rains when it's cloudy outside, I might use inductive reasoning to conclude that cloudy weather is a necessary condition for rain. Or, 
If I run an experiment several times, and the result always seems to come up the same, then I might conclude via inductive reasoning that I can predict what will happen in the future based on the conditions of the present. An example of that would be taking a baseball and dropping it from the top of a 10-foot ladder. I can say with confidence that if I drop the baseball, it will certainly fall to the ground, but only because it has done so every other time. Some very famous philosophers have noted that just because something has happened a hundred, or a thousand, or a million times in the past is not necessarily a good reason to believe that it will continue to happen that way in the future. The objection is known as the black swan problem. You see, before European people sailed to Australia, the only type of swan known to them was the white swan. If every swan they observed was white, then, at the time, it was safe to conclude that all swans were white. So maybe the problem is that we've only observed the baseball dropping from the 10-foot ladder under a very special set of circumstances. That is to say, the ladder is planted firmly on the ground on planet Earth. But now let's say that there are other circumstances as yet unknown that would cause the baseball to fly away from the ladder instead of drop. To put it another way, just because the laws of physics have held up until this exact moment doesn't necessarily mean that they will continue to hold forever. Most people with training in science and epistemology find themselves deeply unsettled by these problems. At least I did when I learned about them in college. The thing about these philosophical problems with science is that they only potentially exist. I could make the argument that if we repeat the ball and ladder experiment on the International Space Station, the ball will not fall as we observe it falling on Earth. It would just float away. And maybe that's our black swan right there. The difference in this case is that while nobody in Europe predicted that black swans existed, a legion of physicists and engineers predicted the microgravity environment of low Earth orbit would exist. Somehow, making a prediction based on a theory and then having that prediction confirmed means something. So where does that leave science? Well, we're stuck with it, I'm afraid. The philosophical problems of induction might just be problems with how the question is posed, like many other logical paradoxes out there. Or it might be genuine. Either way, all the evidence that we have at hand points to the scientific method being the one, and more importantly, the only way to develop true, reliable human knowledge. And furthermore, relying on evidence is a fundamentally intuitive and natural condition for everyone. If I tell you that your significant other is cheating on you, and you have no reason to believe that it's true, you would probably ask for proof. Or, if someone you love is murdered... You want the police to gather evidence so that the detectives can figure out with great certainty who did it, and the perpetrator can be punished. Now, the evidence might be flawed, or incomplete, or there might be a bad actor trying to trick you into a belief for their own gain. That doesn't mean that we abandon the attempt altogether. It means that we have to be very careful in how we investigate and what conclusions we draw from the evidence at hand. Which leads me to a major problem that seems to be plaguing not just the humanities, but increasingly all aspects of the university as a social institution. 
The problem is, is that not everyone agrees when it comes to epistemology. There are many academic theories out there that specifically question whether human knowledge is even possible in the first place. One example of this kind of theory is known as postmodernism. It specifically contends that human knowledge, all of it, cannot in fact be the product of objective investigation, but instead it is the result of historical, cultural, and political forces and power hierarchies. This position should be easy to discard as untrue and not helpful to making any new knowledge. But, for whatever reason, it has become integrally woven into the humanities and many social sciences. Postmodern theory contends that there is no such thing as objective reality, because all observations about reality must ultimately be made by a human being. And because human beings must necessarily be influenced by the culture, language, society, etc. that they grew up in, then whatever conclusions they come to must necessarily be specific to their experience. Not only does postmodern theory question objective reality, but it even brings into question the idea of objective truth on largely the same grounds. Since it is indeed true that human beings are a product of their culture, language, society, etc., many have settled on this attractive conclusion. That is, what is true is only true for one group of people in one given context, and that multiple truths can exist simultaneously. For example, I might say it is objectively true that the sky is blue, whereas the postmodernist could object and say, what I call blue doesn't really exist in another culture, because they have a different term for blue, which ranges from black to silver. Therefore, I have my truth, and they have theirs. The problem with this line of thought, as I see it, is that it breaks down rather quickly when applied to technology. There is a reason why wheels look the same irrespective of culture. A wheel in Asia is just as round as a wheel in Africa. Furthermore, both Asian wheels and African wheels are millennia old. One need not point to systems of political power or hierarchies of value to explain how people on opposite sides of the planet figured out how to make a wheel. If you don't like the wheel example, the same can be said of airplanes or boats. The hulls of the boats used by the native Inca living on the coast of Peru at the time of their first contact with the Spanish looked just like boats made in Polynesia, or in Europe for that matter. That's because you can only change the design of a boat so much before it stops floating. Likewise, there are only so many ways to design airplanes that fly. Both examples point to the idea of objective reality and truth being very real. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with archaeology? Well... I think it has everything to do with archaeology, and with the classics and every other humanities discipline there is. If your training in the humanities assumes that there is no objective truth, then you wouldn't even consider an attempt to find it. Perhaps this difference is best highlighted by the practice of textual analysis and interpretation. Many people working in literature departments would argue that fundamentally, all interpretations of literature are equally valid. You can apply whatever theory, and I mean theory in the broad academic sense here, 
to whatever work of literature and draw all kinds of conclusions from the analysis. For example, I can write a Marxist interpretation of The Merchant of Venice and conclude that Shakespeare meant the play as a broad condemnation of capitalism. This methodology completely ignores what Shakespeare actually meant when he wrote The Merchant of Venice. The argument here is that Shakespeare's original intent is fundamentally lost to us. And furthermore, the whole point of the exercise is to reinterpret Shakespeare forever through the constantly changing lens of the present. The problem here, as I see it, is that while the exact thoughts in Shakespeare's head might be irretrievably lost, there certainly were thoughts in his head that he could not have had. For example, Shakespeare never once thought about his engagement on social media. He didn't ever think about turning off the lights in his house before taking the subway to the movie theater. In fact, that whole sentence would have been utterly unintelligible to him. So, it would seem, you can't just say whatever you want about Shakespeare. I would go one step further and argue that not all interpretations of Shakespeare are equally valid. This problem is not limited to just literature departments. We find it in the classics as well. Maybe my favorite example is the half-century-long argument between the so-called optimistic and pessimistic readings of the Aeneid. In the early 20th century, the scholarly consensus about the Aeneid, that is, the most famous Latin epic poem, was that it was essentially an optimistic tale about the ideal Roman hero arguing for the benefits of a newly minted Roman Empire. American scholars in the 1960s, mostly at Harvard, began to push back against this understanding of the Aeneid, arguing that it was actually written as a kind of countercultural critique of Augustus, the first Roman emperor. The argument has never really stopped. That's because there is no way to gather more evidence about the Aeneid. The poem exists in its final form. Those arguing, either for the optimistic or the pessimistic readings of the Aeneid, have nothing to stand on, other than by going back and citing the exact same paragraphs and passages over and over and over again. The humanities seem to be uniquely susceptible to this type of internecine conflict because there is no experiment to be run to test which of the two hypotheses are correct. Instead, generations of scholars tend to form camps, each camp making more and more elaborate arguments for why their camp is the correct one. Incidentally, the same phenomenon can be observed in the writings left to us from early Christianity. One group's interpretation of the divinity of Christ was necessarily different from another group's interpretation. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to argue that there is no intellectual benefit to studying arguments like this, one side or the other. In fact, I think it's actually helpful to study these types of arguments, if only to learn what a good argument looks like and compare it to a bad one. My problem is with the way that the field can bifurcate and then force future generations of scholars into picking a side by contextualizing their opinion of the Aeneid against a nonsensical generations-long argument that isn't particularly interesting. For example, if I were writing my doctoral thesis on the Aeneid, thank God I'm not, I would expect my advisor 
to sit me down in their office and say, you must address the optimistic versus pessimistic argument for the reading of the Aeneid somewhere in your work. The Aeneid example is only one of several controversies that have eaten people's entire career for no discernible benefit. The way that current scholars of Latin epic deal with this particular conflict is by largely ignoring it for fear of stoking it up again, or treating it very lightly and only in passing. I don't think that this sort of resolution, or non-resolution really, is either satisfying or respectful of the work of those hundreds of scholars that contributed to it. If the ultimate answer is to disregard their contribution to the field, then certainly something is wrong here. I would argue that to avoid this type of internecine conflict in the first place is to encourage better methodology in the humanities. The first step to better methodology, in my humble opinion, is to ask better questions. One of the hallmarks of scientific inquiry is asking falsifiable questions, meaning questions with answers that can be either supported by evidence or not. I can ask the question, how much water can my divining rod find? If I walk around at random with the divining rod and then find water, I might be tempted to conclude my divining rod can find tons of water. I might come to this conclusion because no matter how small an amount of water I find, or even if I find a liquid that contains some water in a mixture with something else, then all of this is evidence for how much water my divining rod can find. But I never took the time to ask if a divining rod can find water in the first place. How much water can my divining rod find is an unfalsifiable question, because no matter how much evidence I find, or don't find, I can never effectively reject the question based on evidence. I can only confirm it. The question assumes that divining rods work, and water is so common that I can always claim to have found it, even if I have to dig a hole a thousand feet deep. If I rephrase the question slightly by asking, can my divining rod find the dish of water that has been placed by my friend at random under one of those ten buckets over there? Well, in that case, I can try as many times as I like to find the dish, and the divining rod will fare no better than chance. In other words, the question can be falsified. How do we apply this lesson to the humanities? It's not going to be easy. Asking falsifiable questions in the humanities is necessarily going to be a fraught process because it will limit the type of research and analysis that gets conducted. It will also fly in the face of those researchers that are asking unfalsifiable questions at this very moment. For example, it will render the question, can we evaluate the Merchant of Venus through a Marxist lens, moot? That is a question that does not rely on evidence and doesn't seem to produce any new information. What I'm proposing is a cultural and sociological change in attitude not just on the part of researchers in the humanities, but also on the part of scientists. If the cultural norm inside of the academy changes to favor deduction and induction as the primary thought processes underlying science, then the definition of science broadens to include more and different types of inquiry, including those fields now sequestered in the humanities. If it doesn't, then we're left with the status quo 
in which entire fields are vulnerable to ideological takeover and rightful criticism from outsiders in control of those mundane things like finances and logistics. You know, the kinds of things that allow the field to exist in the first place. As discouraging as the status quo is, there is reason to be hopeful. As far as I can tell, there's a small but dedicated cadre of archaeologists that would largely agree with most of what I've said in this episode. These are the people moving the field forward by adopting new technology and methods into archaeology. In order to compete with their contributions, other archaeologists will have to develop their methods as well. Ideally, the number of scientifically literate humanists will increase in the future. In theory, you see what I did there? By increasing the percentage of people using good methodology, like the kinds discussed earlier, not only will the humanities produce more and better information, but they will be more adept at defending themselves in the future. Unfortunately for all of us, most people in the field would not agree with me that a broader adoption of scientific thinking is necessary or even welcome inside of the humanities. Incidentally, there is a great way to test whether or not my theory is correct. If I'm wrong, then the humanities will thrive and grow under present circumstances. But if I'm right, then by maintaining the status quo, the humanities will slowly go extinct. Well, that's not true, strictly speaking. To properly test my theory, we could change one humanities department to adopt deductive and inductive thought and then pick parameters for success. If the department hits the parameters after the intervention, then I can confidently state that the remedy for this situation was always more and better argumentation and the adoption of techniques and philosophies that have proved themselves to be useful tools for discovery in the past. Well, there you go. I fixed it. I'm Matt Lupu. Thanks for listening.